This episode of The Philosopher's Nest is brought to you by 80,000 Hours. Your career is on average 80,000 hours long. That's 40 hours a week, 50 weeks a year, for 40 years. That's a huge resource. It may be your biggest opportunity to make a difference. 80,000 Hours is a non-profit that aims to help people find a fulfilling career that makes a positive impact too. They take a philosophically rigorous approach that begins with a precise account of social impact and that yields tangible implications for action. In recent years, 80,000 Hours have provided career coaching to a number of philosophers, including myself, and have even posted an article on their website outlining the ways in which philosophers can leverage their careers to make a difference. And what's more, everything they provide is free. They're a non-profit and their only aim is to help you find a fulfilling, high-impact career. If you join the newsletter now, you'll get a free copy of their in-depth career guide sent to your inbox. To get started planning a career that works on one of the world's most pressing problems, sign up now through the link in our episode description, 80,000hours.org slash philosophersnest. Welcome to The Philosopher's Nest. I'm Kyle Van Ostrom. And I'm Lewis Williams. The Philosopher's Nest is a podcast that showcases the work, insights, and experiences of graduate students in philosophy. This podcast is generously supported by the American Philosophical Association, the Faculty of Philosophy at the University of Oxford, and Lineker College, Oxford. Today, we're going to be joined by Lorenzo Elijah, a PhD student at the University of Oxford. We'll be talking about Lorenzo's pre-philosophical background, his research on political obligation and why we should obey the law, and his thoughts on the importance of mentors and community while doing a PhD. If after listening you'd like to get in touch with Lorenzo, you can email him at lorenzo.elijah at philosophy.ox.ac.uk. Lorenzo Elijah, welcome to the Philosopher's Nest. Hello, thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Did you have a prior career path that you wanted to pursue before philosophy? And if you did, what is it that led you away from that to do philosophy? Well, I am ashamed to say that I was not always a philosopher. Back in the day, I did entertain hopes of one day becoming a, a music composer. I uh, picked up a guitar when I was 14 and uh, fiddled away with some good lessons. And uh, I was in high school, the guy walking around with the guitar and <laughs> trying to uh, look cool all the time. And then I started studying classical music composition as part of my high school grades. I was pretty good at it. I wrote my first string quartet when I was about 16. Then I, uh, you know, my, some of my music teachers showed it around to a few of their composer friends and, um, you know, it was looking like it was pretty good. So I thought, okay, let me go to university and study music. The big problem I encountered was that I was an okay composer and a terrible player (laughs) (laughs) and the programs on offer, they we're like, okay, you need to have both. <laughs> so my thinking was not a problem. I'll just uh, go to university, do one year of a general, you know, humanities degree, and I'll practice in the meantime and get my skills up and then try again. Right. Unfortunately, I part of that first year, I studied a class in philosophy and uh, I got bit by the bug. I've been doing that pretty much ever since. And moving from there, slightly closer to the present, after your undergrad, you then moved on to study a master's in philosophy and public policy at LSE on the same course as myself a couple of years later. I gather you had quite quite an eventful year that year. So could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. So I got off the plane in September. (laughs) By November, 
23rd, which just happens to be my dad's birthday, I was um, doing some charity in a supermarket. I met a lovely young woman who uh, I asked out. Fast forward a few years, we got married. Getting back to the year of my master's degree, I learned a lot. I realized I was woefully underprepared for studying philosophy at that level. So I did a lot of extra reading, a lot of catching up, had to teach myself logic, had to teach myself basic epistemological literacy and metaphysical literacy and all those sorts of things. And then I was doing okay in the course and uh, come around March, COVID happened, everything went online and I basically moved in with the girl that I was dating. <laughs> we spent lockdown together, basically came out of the lockdown with a distinction in the program and uh, marriage engagements. Yeah, a uh, willing, a uh, desire to study further and do a PhD in philosophy and pursue this as a career. And while you're doing your PhD, you also have possibly one of the cutest dogs a person could own. I think his name is Sherlock. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about pet ownership and how that affects you know, the work you want to do and whether it takes away from the time you'd like to devote to your work? I'm pretty sure this is a topic that's not come up on the show. Yeah. So being a pet owner is a very involved activity. <laughs> it does eat up a lot of your time. Luckily, it does come with some benefits in that... Uh, the frequency with which you have to walk him and feed him and stuff, it does force you to actually get up and get away from the table and get away from the desk and actually take in some fresh air, <laughs> which philosophers are always lacking in. It's been tricky in that, you know, as a pet owner, you do feel a heavy responsibility to train them to becoming the best versions of themselves. And that's obviously a very involved project, but it's, you know, it's deeply rewarding and I wouldn't trade it for, I wouldn't trade him for anything. I guess a similarly framed question. Um, I, I too got married shortly before beginning the PhD. I don't think we've had any guests uh, talk about this either, but it'd be interesting to hear your thoughts on what it's like starting a PhD program uh, married. Does it change anything? Does it make you approach the course and the, perhaps the social life in the course in any, in any different way to the ways in which you had started your master's and undergrad before? Um, did you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, for sure. I definitely found that it, it affects your engagement with the course and the social aspects thereof but mostly from changing your dispositions i find that you know being married and having a dog and all these sorts of things i'm just not as interested in going out past 12 <laughs> <laughs> you know for a while a lot of philosophy pub takes place quite late at night and if it was a late afternoon thing i'd probably go but because it's in the evening i find that it's uh, it gets in the way of family dinner and walking the dog and, you know, all these sorts of things. Uh, so the social aspect definitely changes. But I also find that it's really great because it opens up different ways of engaging with my fellow philosophers. So I love hosting dinners, cooking food for people, having them over, and you just engage with them a different way, right? When it comes to the actual studying, I do find that it raises the stakes quite a bit because it's not just you. You're also trying to build a life together and have that be a collaborative effort rather than, oh, I have a great career opportunity. Let's just, you know, take a, a, a year to go and study in Harvard or something. Not that I, Harvard would ever accept me for a year, but <laughs> the, uh, you know, there is much less flexibility. But I think on reflection, I think the ways in which it constrains you is also very enriching. It's uh, part of what makes these relationships really, val really valuable is the types of bonds and duties that are attached to them and are part of them. 
Well, it's interesting that you mentioned duties near the end of that answer. And I guess this ties up a little bit with the research that you're doing at Oxford um, on political obligation and our duties to obey the law. So I, I guess I'm just going to start off with a really obvious question, which is why shouldn't we obey the law? Um, I presume what's the, you know, what's the philosophical nature of that question? It seems pretty obvious. We should obey the laws of the states that we're in. Right. So on one hand, it does seem really obvious. And that's partly why the debate has persisted for so long, because intuitively, you and I think, what's at issue here? Why is this even a problem? But the, <laughs> the trouble is that every attempt to give an answer to this question, you know, why do we have a moral duty to obey the law, has run into some significant challenges. And we've been trying for quite a while to build an account that is you know at least halfway decent and most of our and most of the accounts that we have are um defective in one way or another or subject to really brutal objections and so i think it's still a live research area but you know there are lots of people who have just thrown up their hands and said look we've been trying we failed maybe there's just nothing there maybe we just don't have any obligations maybe we should uh just be anarchists well, if we were to give a positive answer to the question, if we were to provide a theory of political obligation, what would that look like? And do you have a preferred view or one that you're developing? Right. So how would we go about building a theory of political obligation? I think that the theory does need to do a few things. One, it needs to be a, th an, a theory that explains why we have a moral obligation to obey the state. It also needs to be a theory which explains who that obligation is owed to. Some And different theories kind of divide along one of two ways. They'll either say, look, we owe this obligation of obedience to other members of the community that we are a part of, or we owe this obligation to the state. Right? The question of do we have a duty to obey the law is in some ways an unfortunate historical product because I think that what we're really trying to do is explain the relationship between three distinct normative phenomena, the community, the authorities that operate within that community, and the law itself. And I think any successful theory has to sort of explain how these three phenomena relate to each other. So my preferred view is actually a little bit unique in that, whereas most views try to say, we're going to put the bonds of the community first and have that be explanatorily primary, or we're going to take the relationship between the people and the state and that normative relationship of having the power to command as explanatorily primary and then derive our legal duties and our connections with others from that. My preferred approach is actually to take the law as primary and derive our political ties to others from that, as well as our relationship to the state from that. It's a view that is very much a work in progress, <laughs> and I'm still working out a lot of the details, but hopefully by the end of this course, I'll have something to show for it. Well, before we dive a bit deeper into, um, into the preferred view that you present there, I'd be interested to ask, uh, with regards to the methodology that I guess you presented at the beginning of that answer, um, you mentioned that one of those questions that you're interested in exploring then is the kind of moral part of the question and what our moral reasons are to, say, obey the law. 
I guess I'm interested in knowing, is this project really a moral project at its core? Is it moral reasons that you're looking for? Or are there other kind of normative reasons that are not moral reasons that inform our duties to obey the law, our duties to obey the commands of the state, and that inform our relationships with others that you alluded to? Right. So there are definitely other types of normativity that influence the duty to obey. Right. So one type of normativity that influences it is uh, social normativity. Right. So we all have obligations, which are social obligations, which need not be moral obligations, right? Like we have duties of etiquette, cultural conventions, stuff like this, and they have their own sort of normativity to them, which I think is essential to an explanation of the duty to obey the law. Another type of normativity that you have is legal normativity, right? Which has its own sort of weird things going on. But I do think that the project is essentially moral. And to me, that is the most interesting part of it. And it's moral for in in quite a weird way because the duty to obey in recent years has sort of moved on to focus on the more broad philosophical topic of normative powers. And these are essentially moral powers to alter the normative situations of others by declaration. So by my mere communication of the intention to change your situation, your normative situation here, what types of duties you have, who you owe things to, what liberties you have. By my mere communication of that intention, I can change that if I have authority. And that's weird and strange. And it seems different in kind to our other normative powers. Like I can promise, I can forgive, I can consent, but those all seem to change my normative situation. Authority is different. It changes yours. And I think that that's a really interesting thing. And it is sort of the normative core of the project, as far as I see it. So your view is weird, but also interesting, as you just said, precisely because you suggest that sort of by mere say-so, a government can like change the, the reasons we have or change the, the moral or normative situation, right? You called this a, a normative power. I'm wondering about things that can affect the uh, efficacy of a normative power. So do you think, you know, if a government acts in really negligent ways, uh, let's say not distributing resources very well, or, you know, not uh, managing a pandemic well, for example, do you think that that can inhibit the power that they have to change my reasons in some way? And if so, does that not suggest, you know, sort of a, a thing that your view would have to reckon with? Right. So I think that the answer is, Yes, but it's complicated, <laughs> uh, sadly. The, the funny thing is, it's not really my view. It's, the, uh, it's the, the standard view in the literature. And it's sort of the thing that we're trying to explain, right? So why is it that these normative powers exist? Why, you know, if they do exist, right? And can a solid foundation be given to explain what's going on here? Most philosophers will say that like, yeah, the normative power to, of command, uh, the normative power of command is constrained, right? Uh, no one or no sane political philosopher thinks that if the government tells you to murder your firstborn child you know, in the public square, that you suddenly have an obligation to do it because they told you to do it, right? But I think most would say that, hey, if the government tells you to stay at home for a lockdown because it's a pandemic, that you then acquire an obligation to do so. Explaining why is the tricky bit. But I'll give you a, a, a short sort of example to sort of motivate the kind of constraint that there could be, right? So Joseph Raz has this view that in a very dumbed down way, 
the exercise of a normative power works only if the person who would thereby incur an obligation does better by following the commander's orders than if they try to decide for themselves, right? So his view is sort of already dependent on the reasons that the subordinate already has independently. So if you don't have an obligation, to, if you don't have any reason to murder your child in the public square, then that command would just fail to obligate you. But you know there are other theories which say, yeah, there are different foundations for the normative power, and then maybe they constrain it in different ways. Right, so it depend. It's really theory dependent, I would say. Mm-hmm. Okay, Ronald Dworkin famously said, "Lawyers are working political philosophers in a democratic state." And my question for you is, how continuous do you think your work in political philosophy is with sort of actual lawmaking? And do you see your work as kind of interdisciplinary in nature? In terms of actual lawmaking, I have no idea <laughs> uh, because you know these ideas obviously filter through in some way and they influence the political debate. But what those mechanisms are and how influential you know the ideas that we scribble in journals actually are when it comes to public decision makers, I have no idea. But in terms of multidisciplinary, I have found that my research has required me to delve into fields I didn't think I would, just because of the nature of the topics discussed, I found that I needed to do a lot of brushing up on jurisprudence, a lot of game theory, a lot of stuff relating to speech acts and normative powers and rights and obligations and the, uh, you know, a lot of Hofheldian analysis here and there. So yeah, it definitely hasn't stayed in one box. And to move on now to um, some of your thoughts on the PhD life more generally. It was really great to hear your thoughts earlier on certain aspects of your life and their relationship with your academic studies, such as your marriage and your pet ownership. Something that you've also mentioned to us um, as being important during graduate studies is the importance of having a mentor in academia. Um, I'd be interested to um, yeah hear your thoughts on that. Right. So when I started philosophy in first year, I received an email from the head of the department asking me to come into her office. And I was convinced I was in trouble. When I got there, she was like, look, we've just noticed that you are thinking along the right lines and you are making really good arguments and we see a lot of promise and we'd like to encourage you to study further and keep doing this, right? And I think that that encouragement really spurred me to you know, take this seriously and study further. It's really great hearing that you're good at something. And then when I got to the LSE, I was really lucky to find mentors there who to this day are very supportive, um, have written me wonderful reference letters (laughs) and have uh, read a lot of bad drafts to articles, which will never see the light of day. Um, (laughs) And I think that that has been really great. I think that having people to guide you along the way, warn you of some pitfalls, introduce you to some good readings and different ways of thinking about topics is crucial. And I have been exceptionally lucky. In, and I mean very lucky because I didn't choose him, but my supervisor has been world-class. And I think that it really helps to find a mentor who disagrees with you about a lot of things, but who's really invested in your success and your intellectual growth. It's really great to hear that you've had that experience, but I'm sure as PhD students, we've all heard 
stories from others who have had fantastic experiences with those they've worked with and their supervisors. And I'm sure we've all heard stories from people who haven't been so lucky as well. Um, so I guess to look at the pragmatics of this a little bit, and particularly for the sake of prospective students who are thinking of applying to PhD programs, what do you think worked for you in finding a supervisor who works so well with you and who acts as such a good mentor towards you? You know, that is a really great question. And I wish that I had some sort of personal experience that could help prospective applicants find good mentors. But sadly, I don't because I found my mentors purely by accident. I was just lucky that my current supervisor found my application, thought, hey, this guy seems like a good person to work with and uh, chose me. I do think that the standard more responsible advice would be to look very deeply into the research interests of the person that you want to reach out to. And before you apply and ask them to be your supervisor, I would recommend getting on a Zoom call and chatting to them for five minutes if they're, if they're willing to do that, right? Just because you can tell a lot with a quick video call whether you have the right sort of chemistry, the right sort of rapport, whether they have the sort of temperament that will suit you. So yeah, I think that would be a really good way to go. And I was actually lucky that my supervisor arranged a Zoom call with me prior to uh, prior to me accepting my offer. And uh, yeah, it was great. We hit it off right away. Lorenzo, thanks for joining us. Oh, it's been great. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Philosopher's Nest. You can find our website at www.philosophersnest.com. And if you're a graduate philosophy student who might like to come on and join us for an episode, feel free to reach out to us at thephilosophersnest at gmail.com.